as part of our church family throughout the state of North Carolina, throughout the world, we often don't understand how great God is wanting to use you and me at this time and in this place to be on mission for his purposes. Isn't it wonderful often when we get the opportunity to get a little bit bigger perspective of just how big our God is and what he has called us to in our lifetime in serving him? I mean, think about that. Imagine churches across North Carolina. You know, in North Carolina alone, there are 16,000 children in the foster care system waiting to be adopted or fostered and loved by someone. In the 2,800 churches in North Carolina that partnered together with the North Carolina Baptist Convention, in 2,800 churches, we could eradicate foster care child placement if every church was a foster parent. Aren't we glad that we have members of our church that are fostering children and adopting children that need the love of Jesus in their homes? What a wonderful thing if a North Carolina Baptist gathered together and every church was focused on how do we proclaim the gospel of Jesus to those who are the least of these. For a reminder of what Jesus told us, for what you have done for the least of these, you've done also unto me. What a beautiful privilege we have there. But you know what it takes to be on mission together? It takes all of us to be together and united in who we are serving and being an understanding of the faithfulness of what God is and the faithful and unchanging God that we serve. And we're going to examine today as we're working our way through the book of Malachi. Malachi, however you pronounce it, that's good. But Malachi's letter is a prophecy, if you will, that God had given to Malachi. His very name means messenger. And Malachi is giving a message to the nation of Israel about what God would have them to do. And the whole theme throughout Malachi revolves around this issue of different elements of faithfulness about God's people. In Malachi, in the Old Testament days, this faithful was for the nation of Israel. This issue of faithfulness was for Israel because they were a chosen people, a chosen race that God had put his hand upon, and they were unfortunately not doing the very things in representing the God that they claim to believe in. So I want to invite you to find your Bible in Malachi chapter 3 and make your way to verse 6. As you're finding your place there, I want to share with you just a little illustration. We're going to talk about something that often gets uncomfortable for the church and often was probably uncomfortable for Israel as they were hearing this message. But we're going to talk a little bit about this issue of finances and money today. Um, again, most of you that know me, I don't preach. This will be the second time in my almost seven years, six and a half, whatever it is, that you've been gracious to let me be your pastor. Um, this is about the second time I've talked about this issue of financial means. And again, we're doing it through exegesis of Malachi's text in the Old Testament. But most of us remember uh, or can have some understanding of this issue of the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, this corporation that was established during, I think, President Roosevelt's tenure right after the Great Depression. When all of a sudden Americans had placed all their money in their financial institutions, in their banking systems, and they thought that their money would be protected, but when the stock market crashed, guess what happened? Most people lost all of their money. So what did they do? They started holding on to it, and and the president and his wisdom understood that if we don't create some kind of safeguard to help protect that money, people are going to stop giving it, and we're not going to have the financial infrastructure as a nation to be able to get people back to work and to do the things that are needed. Matter of fact, the next image is of what we deal with and we've heard a lot about in the last few days about debt ceilings and limits and all of those things. And isn't it interesting that even our own government understands that debt ceilings have certain issues that are tied with them on what they allow us to do as an American nation. As a nation under the government of America, we know that a debt ceiling, if we can't pay our debts, 
then we lose credibility and we lose our reputation around the world as not being faithful in what we say we are going to do, and we end up losing influence around the world because we don't honor the very things that we say we do. Currency has a way of putting a real tangible value on who we are and what we do. And Malachi is going to share, in way of understanding our text today, that tangible nature of the offering and the tithe that he's going to share with Israel on how much, even in our religious life, it's a tangible measurement, it's a factor that helps us understand where our faith is and who is it, this unchanging God that we put our faith in. So I want to invite you Uh, as we look at four unchanging biblical truths about faithfulness from this context today. And I've got one more image for you, and you're sitting on one of them right now, right? On mission together, it takes all of us. It takes everyone that's part of the body of Christ, that's part of the church, to understand what we could do if we truly were on mission together, if we truly put our trust in faith in the unchanging God that we see reflected in scriptures, how much we could send 700 boxes, plant missionaries in every country that needs to hear the gospel, eradicate child homelessness and fund foster care processes and families that want to adopt in our congregation and provide a home for those children to be trained up to know who Jesus Christ is. Imagine what we could do if we truly were focused on being on mission together. So let me share with you our text. Let's turn to Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. And we'll pick up there in verse 6, and I'll read if you follow along in your translation. For I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So, Father, we come to you now in prayer and asking your blessing upon the faithful proclamation of your truth. Father, we pray you open our minds and our hearts to understand just what stronghold this is in our life and our walk in faith and how you use this to help us anchor and understand what you could do with us when we truly put our faith in an unchanging God. Father, help us to understand, give us wisdom, discernment, and Father, prompt us through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's movement in our lives. Father, help us to hear clearly what you'd have us to do. Father, bring us comfort. Father, I know there are many in this congregation challenged, around the world challenged on this issue of finances. But Father, I pray that you give us clarity of the Holy Spirit as we discern your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to share with you a couple of principles as we're going to walk and work through about four of them. The first one being how Malachi starts off chapter 6 by reinforcing the promises of God and what he declared to the nation of Israel of who he would be. 
You can go all the way back into Genesis and understand that there were several covenant relationships and promises that God made, even to one of them by the name of Abraham, where he promised to bless him and he would be a blessing of all nations. He would be the father of many nations, plural, not just Israel. If you look in verse 6 and 7 again with me for a moment, notice how we anchor the issue that God's ways are absolutely unchanging. They don't waver. They are steadfast. Verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Notice first, God's unchanging nature is declared right here in the text. Malachi makes us understand this concept that unlike us who are changing, God is absolutely underchanging. I want to share with you three principles that we can see here, three observations, if you will. Number one, God's unchanging nature is declared in Scripture. Now, many of us know that the heart of man is, is like a tide. It ebbs and flows. It comes and goes. Sometimes it rises and it falls with our likes and our interest and the different things. What I used to like, I no longer like. Boy, we are probably one of the most changing things other than the seasons themselves. Amen? But isn't it reassuring to know that God's nature is that of unchanging? In Numbers twenty three nineteen, the text tell us this, and I, I started posting some of this along the week and kind of dripping some of this understanding of what we're talking about today on Facebook and other social media. But here's what Numbers 23, 19 says. God is not man that he should not lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Folks, that's the God that we serve, that will do everything he said he will do. You know, in all of the Old Testament prophecy, there are none that were prophesied yet that have not been fulfilled or will be fulfilled And all that Jesus has shared with us and all that God has shared in the Holy Spirit comes to truth and to fruition. In Lamentations, the writer says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Most of you are not married to your high school sweethearts. It's not your fault. I am, by the way, if you didn't know that, right? We change. Our love does cease from time to time in certain seasons of life for certain things. But Lamentations 3, 23 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Folks, that's the God that we serve. It's His unchanging nature that that Malachi is declaring. But notice in verses 6b and and 7, the beginning of verse 7, that there's a pattern of behavior that's being recognized about God's people, the chosen one, the nation of Israel. He says, therefore, because God's unchanging, what's it there for? Because it's something we need to understand and apply to our life. That's why it's there for, right? Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Meaning the wrath of God against unrighteousness has not devoured you in the way you deserve, but because of my unchanging faithful love and the promises I have made to your forefathers, I will spare that wrath from you right now. So Jacob is not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. You see, God understood what was going on in the hearts of man, but yet had enough patience to identify their pattern of behavior. And then along the way, God has done his part through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through his minor prophets, major prophets, and the writers of our New Testament to help us understand these patterns and to try to get us back onto the right path. 
Isn't it interesting how we naturally, as parents, understand that our children sometimes are going to deviate, and when they do, we want to teach them how to return. A pattern behavior was defined by the nation of Israel that was not what it was supposed to be. They were turning from the Lord. But notice thirdly in the text in verse 7, the last part of it, we see that he says to return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You see, a renewal of direction is being offered by God to help us understand who he is. And I would argue today in the New Testament church and in the books of the New Testament that we have, and even the old, when you pair them together, everything from Genesis to Revelation share with us this opportunity to understand the direction we're on and to seek renewal and to turn and return to the Lord. Well, you may say, well, how can I return to the Lord if I never came from the Lord? Oh, but you did, right? For God created all of us, male and female, he created us, and he created us in his image. Now, we may not all be children of God, meaning we've never been adopted into the family of God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We never have repented of our sins and confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, and therefore we're not part of the oikos theos, the household of God. We are just man and woman waiting to return to our creator. And sometimes, unfortunately, many will return to their creator having never been adopted as children. Talk about ending child homelessness. Imagine what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. Yet while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Why? So that I could be covered by the blood of the Lamb. I could be adopted into the kingdom of God, and I could no longer wander this earth homeless as a child without a family. Aren't you thankful that you've been given the family of God to gather together and to worship in, to be a part of the fellowship of God, the koinonia, as we come together in our relationships with one another? If you're visiting here today, notice the fellowship and the love and the brotherhood and all of those things of unity, right? Church, that means y'all can't fight for at least 30 days, okay? I'm kidding. But folks, that's the renewal of direction that God offers us through his word and through the blood of the cross and through Jesus. He allows us to be a part of his family. Regardless of what your home situation is like, regardless of what your earthly father or mother would have done, God is unchanging in his nature. He knows our patterns of behavior, but man, he's calling us back. It says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Why, what does money have to do with all of this issue? Let me share with you, and I'll, I'll get right to the point where Jesus shares this passage of Scripture in Matthew six twenty one. The reason money is such a challenge in financial issues, tithes and offerings, even in the Old Testament day, were such a challenge because it truly was a measure of where our heart is when it comes to this issue of what Jesus called our treasure, the things we value the most. Jesus says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now that doesn't mean there's anything wrong. If you've been blessed with financial means, that God doesn't want you to have that. He expects you to live in squander. That's not what the scripture is teaching us here. But notice it's always a matter of the heart with God. Whether it's declaring his unchanging ways to help penetrate the hardness of our calloused hearts or recognizing the changing ways of man to help him understand that I will give you a new heart. I will take out the heart of stone and put in it a heart of flesh that will once again beat for the things of God. 
Folks, that is the desire. And Jesus is explaining to us here in Matthew's Gospel how important this understanding of we grapple with this issue of treasure. You ever notice how much the world fuels and feeds off of possessions and things and stuff? How many of you all have saw on the social media posts lately that Christmas is going to be canceled because we can't get all the merchandise in the stores? Right? That's going around. We've seen it. We've seen the 78 cargo ships off the port of San Francisco that are waiting to dock, and it's going to hold up Christmas, and the Grinch is smiling right now. Well, when we understand where our true treasure is, we'll realize that it's not on a cargo ship waiting off the Atlantic coast or the Pacific coast or from some other place. Our treasure is in Christ and Christ alone. And that's the reminder that Jesus is giving us. So when we put that into perspective, now I do understand and want to be sensitive, and I'll just be honest with you. Financial matters, even amongst Christians, are difficult. There are challenges in our own lives that we are struggling with as we make that conversion from being lost and unsaved to being adopted into the family of God and now beginning a walk of discipleship where we're learning how to put God first in everything. And I would be amiss if I didn't tell you that that is a process in the life of a Christian. So if you're here today and you're already under conviction that you're not one that ties, you don't believe in that, you don't know what that is, and you don't have enough money to pay your electric bill, let alone pay the church's electric bill, don't worry about it. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep your heart and your mind open to what I'm going to share with you through Scripture and allow God to begin working in your life as a goal to move you forward in being able to do this. Here's what God wants for you, not just from you. Too often we can tell you, and as a pastor, I, we can be guilty of telling you, here's what God wants from you. Give, 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 give. But what we don't do is we don't tell you what God wants for you. God wants nothing but the best for you and for your life. He wants nothing but the issues of financial bondage to be broken in your life so you can be free to do whatever it is God's calling you to do so you truly can be on mission together for him. Often financial struggles are a challenge when I was a young Christian, um, I, I had a real hard time struggling with this issue that Malachi is going to confront the nation of Israel with, with tithing and offerings. And I remember standing there, and I've shared this testimony a few times, so I won't sit on it too long, but I remember physically telling a couple deacons and a pastor that God ain't going to pay my electric bill, God's not going to put food in my fridge, and God's not going to put gas in my car. That's up to me to do. Now, I was saved at the time. But I was not discipled very well, right? And needless to say, after they got done beating me up in the parking lot, um, I'm kidding, uh, after they started, began to share with me, you know, what, you know what one of the brothers did? He opens his wallet and he hands me $40. He said, here, brother, fill your gas up. God says he loves you. That's, that was his response to my bitterness about this issue of tithing because I took it personal. Why? Because I was under conviction about what was going on in my own spiritual life, that I wasn't truly trusting God. I said, you know what? This is the last stronghold in my life that I control. God, you can't have this. I won't trust you in that. I'll trust you with my soul. I ain't got no control of that anyway, right? But I ain't going to trust you with my wallet because this is my last. This is me. I, I, I tell you where I, I choose. I make these decisions, not you in my life. Last stronghold of my life. And I would argue as a testimony, until God helped me get past that issue, I know God would not use me in ministry. I saw it. I, I knew clearly I would not be where I am today serving him 
if I didn't allow the stronghold of financial burdens break me. If I didn't, if I didn't get past that, God would not be able to use me as a pastor to go where he wanted me to go, to answer his call, to leave a career, and to serve him in ministry if I didn't truly believe that his ways were unchanging and that he knew what was best for me. Until I let go of that and gave him control, folks, my spiritual life was stunted. Right? Well, tell our kids, don't drink caffeine. You're not allowed to have coffee till you're grown. We don't want to stunt your growth. Well, I, I firmly believe that the way we handle our finances and the way we give to God can stunt our spiritual growth and stop us from being all that God has called us to be. It is absolutely a trust issue. Returning to God is a matter of the heart, and, and Malachi is going to hit this right on the head here for a minute. How many times have you ever, you ever wrote a, a check and you got it back in the mail, insufficient funds, or you may have been a business owner and you got the check back from the person that bought something from you and it was stamped insufficient funds. Well, what that means is you didn't have enough money in the bank to cover the checks you were writing, right? One of the things we had to teach our children is just because you have a checkbook don't mean you have money, right? You've got more checks than you have money. You've got a whole box of checks. That don't mean you have money, right? We've got about, today we don't even carry checks, now it's the credit cards, and you, you swipe it, and you swipe it, and you swipe it, and your, your company lets you charge and charge and charge, even though you knew you had a limit. You had a $500 limit, but you've been swiping, and you're now at $750. And you know in the goodness of their heart, they're going to allow you to continue swiping that. They're just going to charge you a few extra fees for being over your credit limit, but they're going to let you swipe it because they care about you. Folks, I believe in the church today, we're writing checks spiritually but we have insufficient funds in the bank account to cash what we're asking God to do through us because we haven't deposited into the bank what we're asking to withdraw from God. And we're going to see in the text, look with me in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And he goes right to the heart of this, and he says, Will a man rob God? Now that's tough, y'all, right? Did he go there? Oh, my goodness. If we were watching this play out on the movie, we'd be ready for a brawl in the next scene, right? He just accused Israel of robbing him. And then he says, yet you are robbing me. Not, you might be, I think you are. No, I know you are. You know, the unchanging nature of God, that he's all-present, that he's all-knowing. He knows what we give. He knows our heart, and he knows how we give, and he truly does know where our treasure lies. See, Israel couldn't run away from this issue. He said, no, you are robbing me. And then they ask, notice, but you say, how have we robbed you? In the tithes and contributions. Now, in your Bible, it may say offerings. It's the same concept. Tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse that you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, we know what it means to be robbed, don't we? But isn't it interesting that man's ways require changing because if we just did our own thing boy if god left us to our own devices what kind of mess would we be in right if your wife left you to your own device husband what kind of mess would you be in right uh, wives you could say amen right that's the reality of it if we didn't have that loved one or that partner that relationship we have to help keep us straight i would be a mess without my wife i'd be a mess without my deacons be a mess without our trustees without our sunday school teachers without Corey keeping me straight right? I'd be a mess too. We need others. Isn't it wonderful that God helps keep us straight? I want you to see a few things here that Malachi points out, five elements of this declaration. Number one, there's a question that's posed to the nation of Israel, and he asks them flat out, will you rob God, yet you're robbing me? 
I'm going to get to the issue of tithes and offerings in a minute, but a tithe in the Old Testament was an understanding. A tithe means a tenth. I was listening to Dr. Jeff Orge. He is the president of Gateway Seminary at a conference not too long ago, and uh, Dr. Orge used to be a chaplain for a major league baseball team out in California. And he dealt with baseball players and all the games and their lives, and he, he was ministering to them. And he shared with us this one baseball player that he had the privilege of helping during a very difficult season of his life. And that baseball player came to know Christ and was starting hard. And Dr. Orge gave him a bunch of instructions on where to start reading. And so he goes home like many young Christians, just excited, just devouring the Word of God. And he comes back one day into the locker room, and Dr. Orge is sharing with the, the group. He says, he comes up to me and he says, Nan, i got a couple questions for you. Number one, who's this Malachi guy, and what's a tith? So he begins to pull him aside, and he starts explaining, because whatever it is, I want to be doing it. And that was his premise. I want to be, I want to be obedient and following. Who's this Malachi, and what is a tith? A tithe in the Old Testament would have been understood as a tenth of something that was given back to God. And I will share with you in a few moments that it was long before the law was put into place. We will see a tithe come on the scene. But notice the accusation that was levied against the nation of Israel, that you're robbing me. And then immediately we do what men do, what human nature does, and we immediately go to the rebuttal. We immediately want to offer a but, 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 how? I mean, you really need need to explain this to me. But how have we robbed you? I'm reminded of the Garden of Eden and when God confronts Adam and woman as they run away and they're naked in the garden. They saw they're naked and they ran and they covered themselves because they knew they were naked. And God hollers out, Adam, where are you? We ran and hid for we knew we were naked. Like the good God that he is. Who told you you were naked? You ever do that with your kids? When you know your child did something wrong, you watch them do it. They just didn't know you were watching. And then you confront them and say, did you do that? What do you mean? Are we, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? But the woman you gave me, see, we immediately go to the default of pushing it off onto somebody else. Here Israel saying, but how are we robbing you? I mean, we're good, faithful people. We show up at worship, we come, we've got our clothes, we carry our Bible, we check our boxes, we do all that. How are we robbing you? New Testament, we even take it a step further and say, we're under grace now, right? Well, let's look at it for a few minutes. And then there's the evidence revealed in your tithes and contributions. Now, a complete understanding of tithes and contributions in the Old Testament what would have been an issue, this evidence, if you will, of an agrarian society that would bring their products, their produce, and even financial means into the temple, into the place of offering, and they would collect that up, and God would use that through his Levitical priesthood to provide for them so that they could actually do ministry. See, they were called to be the nation of Israel, they were called to be the people of God, and they were called to go out and minister to their people and proclaim God's goodness, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, to everyone who was around. Even in Nehemiah's day, they struggled with this issue. If you're familiar with Nehemiah and what he's most famous for, it would be rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that he did in just a very short period of time. 
But there was a challenge during that time when they were rebuilding the walls when people began to not be faithful in bringing their tithes and offerings to the Levitical priesthood. And all of a sudden, in Nehemiah chapter 13, the Bible records a great snapshot, a picture, if you will, for you and I, what happens when the people of God stop giving to the work of God like it's supposed to be. Let me read it for you, what took place in this great rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. In Nehemiah 13, 10 through 12, I also found out that portions of the Levites, now the Levites would have been those who were appointed to be the priests to do the ministry of the tabernacle. They were the ones that were supposed to be there at the temple. They were the ones that were supposed to do the work of God on behalf of the other 11 tribes, the ever 11 nation of tribes of God that make up the nation of Israel. And they were to be the ones ministering. And there were some other specifications, but that's who the Levites were. And he goes on to say, I also found out that a portion of the Levites, a a portion, uh, that the portion of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work, they had fled each to their field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought in the tithe and the grain, the wine and the oil into the storehouses. Nehemiah gives us an understanding that when we're not faithful in tithes and offerings, what happened for the nation of Israel, they were not able to do the work of God because they were distracted by trying to figure out how to do the secular things that they felt they needed to do because God's people weren't being faithful in bringing the tithes and offerings into the storehouse. Now let me say this, we are in a blessed state in this church's history in 125 plus years, 22, 21 years since 1901. I've got members of our stewardship committee in the audience. Folks, we ain't hurting for tithes and offerings. Let me get that out in front. I'm not preaching to you today because we have people not giving and my salary's in jeopardy and we can't pay our bills. We have more financial means today than we've had at any other time in the history of our church, in my opinion. All right? So know my heart on this issue. I'm not preaching to you because the coffer is low. I'm preaching to you because this is where God led us at this season of our life. But let me share this with you. Let me share. Let's get to the conviction real real quick, the conveyed. Verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. God's people. The whole nation. Notice he levied that against all of them. Because we make up all of God's people. And not all of us are faithful. What does God do? He holds the nation of Israel accountable for each other. I was once told that peer pressure is one of the greatest motivators you can ever have in an organization. When your people are striving for things and achieving excellence, peer pressure can be one of the greatest things that drive your organization to another level. Here, God is applying peer pressure on the nation of Israel. Even those who were being faithful were being challenged by those who weren't being faithful. Here's what Haggai says about this issue in Haggai chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. You can write them notes down and go back and look at it later. I find it interesting. One of the reasons we often cite of not being able to give or not giving to God is because we don't trust God, number one. Like I didn't when I wouldn't give up my wallet either, right? I didn't trust that God knew how to handle it better. And I remember as a young soldier sitting at the dining room table with Shannon, and we were looking at our budget And we were trying to figure out how in the world can we tithe? We can't even pay our bills. I mean, we're that strapped. If I tithe, that means where do I buy groceries? How do I put gas in the car? How do I, how do I, how do I, how do I, how do I? And the constant question kept coming up. How do I do this? 
And I struggled with it. I struggled with controlling that. And then we said, okay, God, I, I got the Malachi 310 challenge. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not. Okay, I knew the verse. I was leaning on that verse as a young Christian saying, okay, God, I, I have to test you because I don't have it. We'll throw the fleece out. Folks, at the end of the month, we would sit there. I'd scratch my head. I just couldn't figure it out. How in the world do we have money left over? Because last month we didn't tithe and we got nothing. This month we tithed that we didn't have, but we got money left over. I, I don't get it, right? Isn't it wonderful that God's ways are not man's ways? The, how God does things for us. How that milk lasts a little longer before it spoils. How the car goes a little bit further on that tank of gas. I kid you not, I drove back from a church one day, and not because of money, but because I just wasn't paying attention. And you know how our new cars, they, they got the gas monitor, tells you how many miles you got left till E? <laughs> Mine was in triple zeros, y'all. And I was nowhere near a gas station. I had about another 10 miles to go before I could find anywhere to have gas. And I'm thinking, all right, Lord, I need your help right now because I'm about to walk. And I can walk, thank you for good legs, but I'd really like to just pull in to the gas station. I don't even mind coasting in to the gas station. I just want to get there. Folks, I got there and filled up my car. Had no issues, right? What, what a wonderful... T- it's funny how God, when we begin to do those things, He makes that tank of gas go a little bit further than it would. He makes those groceries last a little longer. The washer machine doesn't break like it used to. The fridge doesn't go out right when I just bought groceries. It's funny how that stuff happens and God's hand is right involved in all of it. Here's what Haggai says to the nation of Israel, another minor prophet that's struggling to get Israel to understand, to trust God. And in Haggai's day, he was concerned that the temple was still lying in ruins, but yet the nation of Israel was living in, they were living, let me use a modern secular term, they were living fat, y'all, P-H-A-T. They were living in high cotton. Their houses were paneled with nice wood and their homes were beautiful, but yet the nation of Israel, the temple was lying in ruins. And Haggai's convicted over this and he confronts the nation of Israel. And Israel's response is a little similar. Well, you know, I don't know what we're going to do here. Here's what Haggai draws out in Haggai 1, 5 through 7. He says, Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now listen, y'all, this cuts to the bone here. You have sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so and puts it into a bag with holes in it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Isn't it funny how we try to do it all ourselves, but we never can seem to make it. We can never figure out the balance spreadsheet never, never happens. When I started teaching financial management and learned myself, then I started teaching it. One of the things that I learned was often in our budget when we become a Christian, we put our tith at the bottom of the budget. Right? We put at the very bottom of our budget, we, we, after we've added everything up, we got the tithe down here at the bottom. And we scratch our head and say, ah. Well, in reality, what we're doing is we're, we're giving God the leftover. I was taught by a man by the name of Dave Ramsey, no, 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 your tithe goes on top. It's the first thing you do, and then everything else falls in place where it needs to go. And when you right-size your budget, things will start working out the way they need to. And I thought, that's ingenious, right? I'm simple sometimes. Put your tithe first. Give the God first, the first fruits of your blessings. And when we do that, we start to see things get into order. Haggai was saying here, you got your priorities all mixed up. You sow a lot, you work like a dog. How many of y'all work like a dog, amen? Sanctified dog, that's fine, right? 
We work and we work and we work, but I can never seem to have enough. I, I sow my seed, never, never get enough back. Folks, I know many Christians that are living in this life where it's never enough. doesn't matter how much they have. A millionaire was once asked, how did you feel when you made your first million? He said, I don't know. I'll let you know when I make my next one. There's never enough. It's always driving you. Right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Malachi gives us some challenges. Let me share an illustration with you. Most of you are going to do this today. I hope you do it well. We understand the concept of giving a waitress or a waiter a tip at the end of a meal because they've done good service. And even if they haven't done good service, the general rule is, especially if you're a Christian, y'all, your witness for Christ speaks loud. Don't profess Jesus and then be a, a Scrooge at the lunch table. Right? Shower them with blessings when they don't deserve it. Let me remind you, you didn't deserve, I didn't deserve God's grace and His mercy. I deserved His wrath. I was a horrible waitress. Well, that would be apparent. Waiter. I didn't deserve what God gave me. Man, what a witness when we give someone who doesn't deserve what we're giving them. A blessing, right? But here's how it plays into our message, I think, today and the mindset of many Christians today. We tip God instead of tithing God. We put a 20 in the offering plate, and that's good. Don't stop doing that. If that's you, stay there. But see me afterwards, and I'll take you to the next level. Amen? We tip God. I did this for years. You're not tithing. You're tipping. When you tip God, that's not a tithe. Now, will God use that? Yeah. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his anyway. He doesn't care about your money. He cares about your heart. He wants to know, do you really trust me? Or do you just trust me in the things you can't control anyway? That's where the rubber meets the road for us. So here's what I want to do. 80% of those, here's, here's something, a wonderful statistic. 80% of those who give regularly, who tithe through their church, and I found this just absolutely fascinating. 80% have zero credit card debt. Odds are... Other older demographics, as many of millennials have credit card debt, student loans, and mortgages. You know debt and bondage to debt is one of the things that keeps Christians from being faithful in financial issues because we don't know how to get out of it. Uh, I wasn't raised learning how to manage a lot of money or even my own finances. I didn't, I didn't understand that stuff. And for years, Shannon and I went through this debt cycle of not having money, not knowing, not, not making it, not being able to tithe. Folks, we tipped. That was all we did until we learned how to handle it. So here's what I want to offer you. Many of us are tipping God right now because we don't know how to truly tithe. So here's what I want to do. What, what do we want for you? What does God want for you? We want to teach you biblical stewardship on how to get your finances in order so your budget can be right-sized, so you can grow and get yourself in a position where you can be faithful in that and folks, when you do, wait to see what God starts to bless you with. He's not blessing you because you're tithing. He's blessing you because your heart has gotten right with being obedient to God. Blessings come after obedience is present. When we are obedient to God on this issue, God's blessing. So we want to offer that. If you're interested in that, and maybe you're struggling, and you can't tithe, you don't see the purpose of it, and there's just no way, Pastor, I can't do it. Hey, by the end of 12 weeks, you'll have more money put aside, if you follow what we're going to teach you and share with you, than you've probably ever known in your life. 80% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their savings account. If they had a flat tire today or needed a battery for their car, they'd have to put it on a credit card. 
because they couldn't afford to go have it repaired and put a $200 Michelin on their car. Think about that. That's the world that we're ministering to. That's even the world inside the church. But what we're saying is we want to come alongside you and help teach you biblical stewardship and what it means to be a Christian who is able to get our treasure right so that our heart is aligned with where God wants us to be. We don't have to leave here feeling condemned because we're not able to tithe. We don't know how to do this or why to do it. We're going to give you some tools to help you financially get yourself in a position where you can be faithful as a believer. Thankfully, somebody did that with Shannon and I. And I will tell you, today we are reaping the benefits of being obedient to God and not worried about making financial choices of where I work, where I go because of money issues. It is a blessing that we have. But I want to share with you thirdly that God's promises are faithful, absolutely faithful. Look in verse 10. Now here's the challenge, right? Everybody likes the I dare you kind of test, right? Us men, we like it. I dare you. Test me in this, right? Verse 10, bring the full tithe. That means all of it, not tipping, but tithing, right? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. That's good, ain't it? When God says, I dare you, try me on it, see what happens. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Y'all catch that last word? Y'all underline that last word. He didn't say no more want, y'all. He said no more need. No more need. There's a big difference between my needs and my wants, right? But I want to share with you, depending on what version of Bible you're reading, a couple different translations of the very end of that verse in verse 10. In the, home, in the English Standard Version that I just read to you, it says, I'll pour down for you blessings until there's no more need. The NASB, North American Standard Bible, says, until it overflows. The Holman Christian says, measured. The New King James says, not enough room to receive it. The NIV says, you won't have enough room to store it. Amen? Y'all awake with me? Y'all here with me? Not enough room to store it. Test me in this, says the Lord. Three elements to notice regarding the the tith, the tithe. Number one, faith and trust. It is a faith and trust measurement device that God uses in our life. Man, we'll trust Him with our soul. We'll believe that Jesus died on the cross. We'll believe that He created the earth in six days. On the seventh, He rested. We'll believe that He's the God that can do anything. But then when He tells us this issue of financial matters, we're like, no, 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 no. I, I got that one. I got it. I'm good. I don't believe that that will work out. I honestly believe that tithing and giving to God is a faithful measure. It's a measurement device God uses. He takes our treasures and our temples, and he, under, and, and he helps us understand what's truly at the heart of the matter, as Jesus reminded us. Now, let me, get into the, let me dig into the weeds a little bit. If you're one of those that says, well, tithing's not in the New Testament, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I should give with a cheerful heart. I'm going to share that with you in a minute. And you'll hope I stopped at a tithe by the time we get done here. Y'all with me? Ready? Buckle your seatbelt. Here we go. Here's what Jesus says. Now, I love Paul. Man, I'm going to have some coffee with him when I get to heaven. Right? It's going to be wonderful. Peter will be wonderful. But folks, there ain't anybody better in the New Testament that I'm going to listen to or learn from than Jesus himself. Y'all with me? Well, testament, tithe is not in the New Testament, Pastor. Yes, it is, and Jesus himself talks about it. You ready? Here we go. Matthew 23, verse 23, as he's devouring the Pharisees here through his teaching. 
He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Wait for it. Here it comes. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Y'all ready? These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Y'all with me? Let's go a little bit deeper. In Matthew 5, verse 17 through 18, Jesus reminds those who are following him, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So when we try to teach, well, Jesus didn't tell us to tithe. There's no commandment in the New Testament tithe. Well, it was already set in motion long before any of the law was put into place. How do I know? If you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 7. Excuse me, Genesis chapter, let's see, where do I, find, I apologize. Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. Now, this is the, the story of Abraham going into battle, and he has this great battle against the kings that are there, and then he runs into a guy known as the king of Salem, Machizeldek. And after, after Abraham's, Abraham's battle, and he, he wins all these things, here's where the scripture takes us. This is long before the Levitical law, long before Deuteronomy, long before the tabernacle is established, long before Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai, long before the Ten Commandments come into place. And here's the precedent that establishes this understanding of giving back to God because of our faithfulness and our appreciation. Had nothing to do with the law. Picking up in Genesis 14, 17. After his return from the defeat of Shadorlamar, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevna, that is the king's valley, and Machizeldek, king of Salem, that is a type of Christ, by the way. Some say that is Christ in the Old Testament, revealed to Abraham. And Machizeldek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a high priest of God most high. Isn't it wonderful that Machizeldek, what's he do? He's celebrating the Lord's Supper right there with Abraham. It's good, right? A shadow of what was to come in the New Testament. Verse 19, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And right there in the last part, look what Abram does. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's good, isn't it? Folks, too often I think we who are anti-legalistic in the New Testament under the covenant of grace are quick to apply the same legalism element to, well, tithe is not commanded in the New Testament. We shouldn't have to do that. It's no longer part of the law. Folks, it wasn't part of the law here when it was first done. To who? I would argue to Jesus himself is who Abram was giving back to. Some would put it this way. If a tithe was good enough for a Jew under the law, a tithe ought to be the minimal contribution under the Christian who is now under grace. God's ransom at Christ's expense. So we see clearly there are a few passages. Let me share another one. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Paul's teaching. He says, The point is this whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. What did Abram do? No one told Abram to give a tenth. Abram did that out of his own desire. And later on, people realize, you know, this is good. We'll give back to God. And this will become the mechanism which God uses for the Levitical priesthood to carry on the ministry. 
Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. But I don't know how many times I told Shannon, I ain't cheerful today, girl. Keep that checkbook in your wallet. I'm, straight, I'm just telling, sharing my testimony. God forgive me. And he asked. I've already asked for it. I went tired because I wasn't cheerful today. That was my excuse. Imagine that. I'm your preacher, y'all. Boy, has God done a mighty work. Amen? I ain't tithing today because my heart's not right. I don't feel like giving. I keep it right in my wallet. I wonder how many blessings my family lost out on because I wasn't faithful in helping do the work of the gospel of the ministry. That's just me, y'all. I see it in a different perspective today. I see what God was doing in my life through this issue, this stronghold. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Amen. My children don't know need. My children don't know those hard years. My children don't know the struggling mom and dad at the table trying to figure out how can we be obedient to God and tithe when we can't put groceries in the fridge. My kids were just little. They don't know the struggles, buying a car and the door falling off in the parking lot right after I bought it because it was a hoopty right? Buying used tires, hoping they'd make it back to the house. Our kids don't know none of that stuff. But man, as we got obedient with God, I will tell you over and over and over, God began began blessing us, not just financially, but in opportunities and positions and things that I can't explain. Over and over my Christian walk now, God has written the story better than I could have written the script myself on how I wanted my life to go. God is doing it over and over and over and over. Test me in this, he says, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven so much so that you won't have room for the blessings. It's interesting that phrase, I will open the floodgates of heaven. You know the last time we see that phrase being used? It was in Genesis chapter 6, right before Noah loaded up onto the ark. And when Noah got his family and all the animals and the door was shut, what does the scripture tell us in Genesis chapter 6? I don't know. I've already moved on. Genesis chapter 6, he tells us the following. Genesis chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. Now imagine that. God opened the windows of heaven to flood the earth, and it filled to where there was no landmass, 40 days and 40 nights. He's using the same descriptor to understand, help us comprehend the blessings he wants to pour out on us when Malachi tells us, test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven that you won't have enough room to store it, to hold it, to contain it. Point number four, and I'll close with this one. God's provision is sufficient. God's provision is is sufficient. Look in verse 11, 12. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that I will not, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Three things. Number one, there's an action of God, an action of God. God took the initiative to declare that he would rebuke the devourer, that he would protect against destruction. You know, Satan wants to do the same thing in our life, to rob, kill, and destroy. But even Jesus turns to Peter and says, Satan desired to buffet you, but I will pray. I have prayed for you 
to safeguard you, to keep you strong. In the Old Testament, Joel, another prophet, would say, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust had eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust had eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust had eaten. You see, a nation of Israel's disobedience, Joel was prophesying about just how bad the famine was going to get if we didn't turn back to God, if the nation of Israel didn't, again, follow the ways of God. But instead, in their plight, the devourer would eat everything and there would be nothing there. You see, the provision that God gives us is an action of God. I'd argue even the salvation that we have today wasn't initiated by you or me. It was initiated by God. For it's by faith you are saved. It's a work of God. It's not by, by any other means. It's not by anything we can do. It's not by works. Right? It's by faith and faith alone. Not by works, lest no man shall boast. What a wonderful thing that God's provision was sufficient for us on Calvary's cross. But secondly, it's also a blessing for us. Blessing for man. Notice in verse 11b, the vine that he's talking about there. The vine in your field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. The vine bears much fruit. That should be B-A-R-E, right? The blessing before man. God is allowing us. Here's how John 15, 5 through 7 would tell us about remaining close and understanding what the vine says. I am the vine, that's being Jesus, and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Folks, well, I don't know why we struggle with this as, as bad as we do, and myself included, when we see clearly God's action and his initiation and his blessing for what he wants to do in our life. But man, we just won't let him take over. We've got to let him take over. As a church, we've got to let him take over. But lastly, there's a message to the world. Notice how he describes this. He says, the land of delight, the people of the province there would be a land of delight and others would see it and they would be called blessed. Because of what God is doing through his faithful people. Others would want to be a part of that. Folks, you know how many people will receive one of these little red and green boxes around the world? They will open it up and they will immediately in their mind think about how blessed that family must have been. And how rich and wealthy they are in America to send me this gift more value in one of these boxes than what most of them villages have in an entire week's worth of wages for a family. They're going to see these boxes, and you know what they're going to think? God has blessed that nation. God has blessed the church. What a blessing it is to receive something from them. The message to the world is the gospel of salvation that God uses in our tithes and our offerings through our obedience and our service to him. And I don't have time to talk about all the other issues of tithing that involve times, talents, treasures, not just our finances. But here God was specifically talking to Malachi and impressing upon the people the financial emphasis of what was happening to the nation of Israel and the inability to do the very work. Yes, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, you may be saying. Why does he need my money? He don't need it, number one. 
but he's giving you an opportunity to be a blessing and to be blessed, to do the work he's called us to through that action arm. That's why we do what we do. It's our faithfulness to God and an unchanging God. Isaiah 62, 4 would say the following, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. This delight, it's a feeling of extreme pleasure and satisfaction. Samuel would will close this out today in our message. He says the following as he's confronting the king at the time who did something he wasn't supposed to. He failed to be obedient to what the law was and what Samuel had informed him of. And Samuel said the following in Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. It takes all of us. You know, the image that I have for you of a pew and a church pew, it's just a pew. But what it represents as the body of Christ, as we worship together, as we come into the Lord's house, as we come into a place where we gather as God's people and we bring that tithe and storehouse, folks, it enables us to do this of what we're doing. And I got it. Some do not steward it well, but I promise you this church does. I promise you the mission of who we are and what we stand for to proclaim the gospel to the nations absolutely is at the heart of who we are. To make a culture of disciple-making that impacts lives and lostness, not only in our community, but around the world. Folks, that's what God is doing in this place. And we ask you to be a part of that. Be faithful in all that God has called us to do. Folks, we are so much better together than we could ever be by ourselves. But together... Let me share one more fact with you. My stewardship to me may, may not like this. You may not like this. We have about 60 giving units in our church. We have our, in our membership. To join our church, to be a member of our church, now you go through a process of understanding who we are and what we require and the commitments of what we expect and what you can expect from us. And we go through a great process to help inform our membership. But one of those elements is financial fidelity and faithfulness in giving to support the mission and the ministry, to help people encounter God, to equip for life, to engage the world with the gospel. And when you become a member here, you're considered a member, we, we have expectations of that. We have 60 members giving units. We have more members than that. We've got about 180 or so on our rolls, but about 60 giving units that make up the people that contribute faithfully as our membership to our church. Bob, can I share this? Is that all right? We are, we are blessed beyond measure, y'all, and how many folks are giving faithfully to our church. Of our 60 giving units, we average about 63% of our membership that give to our church. Two-thirds. So two out of every three people sitting in our congregation that's on our rolls that's a member, two out of three give financially. You know, 33% of our membership doesn't give a dime to our ministry. 33%. Imagine what we could do if the church of God was faithful in giving to God and learning how to trust Him. Imagine how much more potential a church who's already seeing its best years financially with only 66% of its membership contributing financially. Now, just to be clear, I don't know what you give. I don't want to know what you give. Don't give me a check. Don't give me money. Put it in a box. Give it to an usher. Give it to a deacon. I don't want it. 
God does. But I do know that a third of our congregation doesn't give. But yet God is still showering the blessings upon the faithful who are supporting this ministry. 60, 66%, 63-66% of our members give to our church. That's good, isn't it? We're seeing blessings upon blessings. But imagine what it could be if we understood, if we got ourselves into a position where we could truly right-side where we're putting our trust and our treasures. I just I can't help but think, man, what is God wanting to do through us, with us, if we are all on mission together? It'll blow the roof off of it. I'll tell you my plans later. I've got a vision for how that could work. But just know that's where we are. We are blessed to have what God is showering us with. But man, there is so much more potential in this small congregation, normative-sized Southern Baptist Church, of what we could do on mission together if we learn how to be faithful with God. Let me close in prayer. So, Father, we thank you for the blessing that you've showed us. Father, we thank you for all you are doing through this church. Father, all you are are allowing us to see in the prosperity of being able to send 350 shoeboxes with plans to follow up with mission trips to where these boxes land so we can meet and shake hands and embrace and hug not only the missionaries but the children that have come to know Christ. Father, the vision to plant missionary engagements on every continent of this world where there are missionaries present, that this church can be a part of going month after month and year after year to take the gospel and train and equip your body for the gospel ministry, to reach this community with the gospel. Father, the ability to educate children in all grades and ages with a Christian school right here on our campus. To be able to be relevant, salt and light to the people of this community. They don't have to drive to Pinehurst to drop their children off for preschool. Father, you've given us a vision that that could be right here. We could be ministering to our neighbors right here in this community by being relevant in their lives, helping them deal with crisis, teaching and training and equipping and showing them the love of Christ. And Father, we know that even you had an understanding that ministry takes money. Of all people, you allowed Judas to be the money carrier. Father, we thank you for the blessings you've given us. And Father, we pray now that you will give us a spirit of faithfulness. Father, clarity of understanding of the blessings of what you want for us, not just from us, as we learn to be faithful and to trust you in all circumstances. Father, we thank you for the mighty work, and we pray that you'll continue to allow us to be faithful and proclaim the gospel to all nations, every tribe and every tongue, so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Father, we thank you for this day, and we pray that if there's one here that's under conviction of this issue, Father, help them seek the guidance to help equip them. Father, help them to be obedient, and Father, if there's one here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, Father, make it clear that before we worry about tithing, we need to give you our life. Confess our sins. Put our faith and trust in you. And Father, you'll guide us along the journey. Father, we praise you and we thank you for this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.